Welcome back to another episode of the Neurology Exam Prep Podcast. We'll call this a very special episode. I have with me Dr. Rachel Beekman, a neurointensivist here at Yale. And we're going to be talking about determination of death by neurological criteria, commonly known as brain death. This is an essential skill for every graduating neurologist. It is a component of the milestones through the ACGME for uh, US trained neurologists and throughout the world. This is a critically important skill to hone. And I think there are lots of concepts about this determination that we can discuss and clarify. And this is a major focus of Dr. Beekman's career. And I can't think of anybody better to discuss this with us. So welcome, Dr. Beekman. Thank you so much for having me. So Dr. Beekman, walk us through what we're going to talk about today in the podcast. So today we'll talk about the definition of brain death, how to identify patients who are eligible for brain death determination, identify the components of brain death determination, common problems associated uh, with brain death, and then some tips and tricks for discussing brain death, which can be a very challenging topic for families to understand. So, so what is brain death? So brain death is the irreversible loss of all functions in the brain, including the brain stem. And how did we come up with this determination of death, right? This is, this is a consensus definition of death medically, but there's a historical background to this, right? There is. So in the 1800s, death really became defined by the loss of the heartbeat after the invention of the stethoscope. And in the 1950s and 60s, there were advanced advancements in resuscitation and ventilation which meant that someone who had died and their heart had stopped could be resuscitated. And this resulted in a large population of patients without cerebral activity being sustained artificially. In the late 1960s, an ad hoc committee of Harvard Medical School set out to define criteria for irreversible coma as a new definition of death. And the prompting for this was really that there was a large burden on the healthcare system and on, on families with patients who are artificially kept alive, but without brain activity. But around the same time, there were also advances in organ transplantation that really made defining death by neurologic criteria important. What were the components of the death by neurological criteria in the 1960s? It would be interesting to have sort of that historical perspective and, and contrast that with how things have been refined to this day. They're actually fairly similar to the definitions that we use now. So Patients needed to be in a deep coma with no withdrawal to painful stimuli. They had to have areflexia, and that was defined as both cranial and spinal, and which we'll note the changes in today's criteria. They had to have apnea, and they disconnected from the ventilator for three minutes. They had to have an EEG that did not show cerebral activity. They made sure that there were exclusion for confounding variables such as hypothermia and drugs. And the evaluation actually was repeated 24 hours after to confirm that patients still met criteria. So how did this sort of spread spread throughout the U.S. and the world? So how were these things adopted? I imagine that it, it took some time. Yeah. So over a period of about 10 years, 10 to 15 years, some states began to adopt a brain-based definition of death. Kansas was the first state in 1970. And then in the 1980s, actually 1980, the AMA drafted the Uniform Determination of Death Act which was then adopted by several states, including uh, Connecticut in 1984. So we have slightly different criteria for determining brain death now. And I guess most of the guidance that we use comes from consensus criteria 
uh, and advice put together through guidelines from national organizations and international organizations. There's some criteria that can be found through the American Academy of Neurology, for example, uh, which are, are the ones that we follow at our institution. So walk us through the components of neurological determination of death that we use at our institution and that are generally accepted to be the criteria that are used in most other places as well. Yeah, so there are three main criteria for determination of death by neurologic criteria, and those are the establishment of irreversibility, the exclusion of any confounding conditions, and then uh, achieving three clinical criteria, coma, brainstem areflexia, and apnea. And you'll see that spinal cord areflexia is not included and is often present in patients who are declared brain dead. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a little bit, right? The uh, uh, spinal cord reflexes can be quite dramatic and can lead all of us to wonder uh, whether we're accurately establishing death by neurological criteria. And so we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, you and I, before we uh, started recording, we're talking about some personal experiences we've had with observing very dramatic spinal cord reflexes in, in people who did meet the criteria for death by neurological criteria. Absolutely. And these can be uh, very startling. And the Neurocritical Care website has an excellent resource uh, called the Brain Death Toolkit, where these videos can be watched. Yeah. So that's a good one for our listeners. The Neurocritical Care Society uh, the Brain Death Toolkit. Uh, I know we've used some of those videos in our teaching, and they really show the range of spinal cord reflexes that we can uh, we can see. So, who needs to be involved in determination of death by neurological criteria? I know this varies by region and by jurisdiction, but generally speaking, who is involved? So, generally, you require two licensed, board eligible, or certified physicians with appropriate expertise, and this does range by institution. But at our institution, that does require one of those to be a neurologist, neurointensivist, or a neurosurgeon. So tell me a little bit about determining approximate cause of irreversibility for the sustained brain, basically absence of, of brain function. This, I imagine, is requires a lot of expertise going back to who should be involved in determining this. You have to have a substantial understanding of neurological disease to know what might be associated with irreversible coma. So, so tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I think this is, this is the key step. Um, and if this step is missed, it can be very hard to uh, ensure that brain death is accurate. I'll tell you, there was a patient two years ago that I took care of that presented with a traumatic brain injury and then had a very atypical course where he progressed into what looked like clinical brain death, but his imaging did not make sense for brain death. His imaging showed mild subarachnoid hemorrhage. And what we later diagnosed is that he actually had post-traumatic Guillain-Barre involving all cranial nerves, mimicking brain death. And this is why these criteria are so important. It is critical to have clinical or neuroimaging evidence of an acute CNS catastrophe compatible with your clinical diagnosis. And if the imaging does not correlate with what you think the diagnosis is that should have imaging findings, it is important to stop there and reconsider your diagnosis. Yeah, I think this is a great point to emphasize in your story of somebody with a severe neuromuscular disorder not having reflexes. That's an alternative explanation for why somebody might not have brain brainstem reflexes is honestly a little chilling, right? Uh, I think it's the sort of thing that we have to keep in mind that there can always be other explanations. Uh, on the other hand, I'm sure there are cases where 
it's relatively evident early on that somebody has irreversible coma. You know, examples like cardiac arrest with a prolonged period of time of of hypoxemia and evidence of diffuse cerebral edema, uh, for example, for a prolonged period, that would be a type of injury that most of us would would acknowledge would be associated with irreversible coma. And and I'm sure others, severe trauma, uh, severe brain injuries of other types. Yeah. One other important challenge that we face with brain death is patients who come in with a brainstem hemorrhage or isolated brainstem injury. So we, when we talk about brain death, we talk about irreversible loss of both the brain, including the brain stem. But we tend to not do brain death testing on isolated brain stem injury. And so it's important to recognize the trajectory of patients because patients with a posterior fossa hemorrhage may end up progressing to brain death due to hydrocephalus, loss of perfusion to the cortex. But in that initial instance where they have isolated brainstem injury, they might have brainstem areflexia, but would not meet criteria for brain death. Yeah, just a, just another great example to remember that the criteria are in order, right? Uh, we, we don't start with the exam or with the apnea test. We start with our clinical judgment uh, and identification of a clear proximate cause that we understand that would be associated with irreversible coma. So tell us about some other confounding factors. So let's say we do identify a patient who has an injury that could definitely be consistent with a reversible brain injury. What are the, what's the step that we have to think of before we move to the exam to, to reverse any factors in that patient's clinical scenario that could, again, mimic brainstem reflexia without truly being the case? The most common confounding factors are hypothermia, hypotension, right? So if you if you're cold or not perfusing your brain, you can have loss of brain function, but that might not be irreversible. Severe electrolyte disturbances, of which the most common are related to sodium, calcium, phosphorus. Treatable metabolic disorders like hyperammonemia, which can cause a reversible coma. Drug intoxication or neuromuscular blockade. And if patients were previously on neuromuscular blockade for any other treatment, it is important to be able to make sure that that has wore off. Yeah. And and again, this is uh, the part when I've been involved in determination of uh, death by neurological criteria and the examinations in the past, I've often reached out to people like you, my neurointensivist colleagues, when when there's a, a finding that's in, in the borderland, right? You know, so you say, for example, severe electrolyte disturbance. On the other hand, most of us would say that somebody with a clear catastrophic brain injury with a mild hyponatremia, you know, a a few points below the lowest end, uh, that would still be clearly this person has been devastated. So how do we make these judgments? I mean, this is again, where the clinical judgment comes in. So this can be really challenging and is very person specific and what people are comfortable with. And I think each clinical scenario is somewhat different. A patient who presents with cardiac arrest and has global cerebral edema and herniation, a sodium of 132 is probably not contributing to coma. But you have to take the variable into context of that clinical setting and assess whether that electrolyte disturbance could possibly be the resulting exam. I, th- I think really you're making a strong point, uh, uh, Rachel, for having people with tremendous expertise involved in this process, right? I mean, uh, this depends on good training, good experience, and a deep level of knowledge about neurological disease and what could be involved in the determination. Absolutely. And I think this is 
This is a diagnosis that cannot be a miss. Determination of brain death results in death. And so we have to be accurate 100% of the time. Walk us through uh, the elements of the brainstem examination that we have to cover. So the first and foremost is level of arousal. So you want to make sure that to voice noxious, that there is no response from your patient, ensuring that the patient is comatose. It is important that noxious is provided in several areas to make sure that if there is some reason that the patient cannot sense pain in one area, that you are assessing in multiple areas. So we often do temporomandibular, supraorbital, nasopharyngeal, and then noxious throughout the extremities, both proximally and distally, including central along the sternum. It's also important to test all cranial nerves. On the cranial nerve exam, one of the most important things is that the pupils need to be four millimeters or larger and fixed. I often see people work uh, preparing for brain death determination in patients who have fixed pupils that are smaller than four millimeters. And in those patients, you really need to think of alternative causes, especially opiates. And I guess I, I guess the, the important sort of neuroanatomical point is that if you have absence of both sympathetic and parasympathetic innervation to the pupil, then the pupil is going to stay in that mid-sized position, right? You're, you're not either going to have excessive dilation or excessive constriction. Now, if you have brainstem dysfunction and you have primarily sympathetic outflow from the sort of peripheral uh, sympathetic system, then you might get dilated pupils, at least initially. But it sort of fits with that idea that we have, we have complete brainstem dysfunction. And if we have complete brainstem dysfunction, you, the usual situation will be mid-position sized pupils. We also do uh, cold calorics on these patients. Uh, the head of the bed should be at 30 degrees. We instill cold water through the ear canal and you're opening the eyes, keeping the eyes open and watching for any movement of the eye. In a patient who meets criteria for brain death, the eye will stay fixed mid, mid position without any movement. Any movement in the eyes should cause you to abort the test. We often give five minutes between ears to allow for readjustment of the vestibular ocular system. Rachel, I think we've talked a lot about the gravity of this diagnosis and, you know, it, the finality of it. And so, again, our obligation to be really rigorous in our examination. So tell me some nuances uh, that are important uh, in the brainstem examination. For example, some of the technical considerations when we're checking the corneal reflex or the gag reflex that we want to make sure that it is truly absent. Yeah, this is not a time to be gentle on the exam. I don't bother with saline or puff of air. I will get a cotton swab and do direct pressure. It is important to make sure that you are doing direct pressure on the cornea. Um, and so uh, the color portion of the eye where the nociceptors have the highest density. And when you're doing the gag reflex, uh, you can do it in several different ways, but you want to make sure you stimulate bilaterally. Some people will use their finger to make sure that they could, that they get in the correct place. Some people will use a suction catheter. You can also use, there are swabs um, at the bedside that, that get to the back of the uh, pharynx, but you want to make sure that you are, that you are aggressively stimulating the pharynx to assess for a response. It's also important while you're doing your assessment to take a look at the ventilator often I think the most common problem I see is that people are so focused on the clinical examination, they don't realize 
that the patient is actually taking their own breaths, which would disqualify them for brain death testing. So if you do see yellow breaths on a ventilator that are not triggered by um, you rubbing the patient's chest or fluid in the tube, that should clue you into maybe that the patient has intact breathing. We have some technology that you often use in the neurointensive care unit, the pupillometer, as a way to be really sure uh, that there isn't some subtle reaction of the pupil. Do do you tend to use those uh, in brain death determination? I do. Now, not every site has access to a pupillometer. And when patients' pupils are typically seven millimeters, but sometimes four millimeters, it is visually pretty easy to assess. However, in uh, determining brain death, I always use a pupillometer and you're looking for a pupil that's four millimeters or larger with a neurological pupil index and NPI of zero. And and again, a a theme is emerging in our conversations, uh, Rachel, that we want to be sure uh, that this person does not have any brainstem reflexes present. And in the cases I've been involved with where uh, brain death is clear, you're sure, you know, I, I think this shouldn't necessarily generate anxiety. It's pretty clear when there's nothing, when there's no response present. But if there's any ambiguity, again, this is another red flag time to pause and, and reconsider the diagnosis or invite input from colleagues. Correct. And this is why it's standard to have two physicians present. Right. Tell us a little bit about some of the exam findings that we can see that would not preclude a diagnosis of brain death. So as we discussed earlier, spinal cord reflexes can remain intact. And you might see a host of different things, but they should all look um, they should all look stereotyped. They should decrease in frequency each time that you stimulate the patient. And you typically see um, things like triple flexion, or you can see arm tremor, or something called a Lazarus sign, where the patient may actually elevate their head off the bed or turn their head. These are very stereotyped. There are video examples on the brain death toolkit, as we uh, described in the past. But if there's any question, a second physician should be brought in, and you can always involve the neurointensive care. And the idea is that these reflexes are spinally mediated, that they have no input from the brainstem or above, and that we do have these stereotyped reflexive processes that can originate in the spinal cord and, in fact, can emerge when you get the absence of any input from higher brain levels. As we've said before, the Lazarus effect is is sometimes uh, the patient almost completely sitting up because of flexion of the of the trunk in the bed. And so these can be very dramatic, but they are all clearly spinally mediated. And and your tip, Rachel, of making sure that they're stereotyped, that is they're pretty similar each time you do the stimulation and that they fatigue, that you see diminished amplitude or, uh, or intensity of these movements each time you do the stimulation are generally reassuring findings. So now we'll move on to the apnea test, right? This is the component of the brain death examination that uh, can be the most complex. And there are a lot of technical considerations here. So how do we set ourselves up to be able to accurately determine apnea in response to an elevated CO2? So it's important to first understand who is able to undergo apnea testing. So patients need to be warm and have a blood pressure above 100 systolic. 
but they also need to be able to get their PaO2 above 200, which often requires pre-oxygenation with 100% FiO2. Patients with ARDS who are on high PEEP or high oxygen at baseline typically will not tolerate apnea testing. Patients who are on multiple vasopressors with difficulty achieving a systolic blood pressure above 100 may also not tolerate apnea testing, and those patients may require an ancillary test. In patients who are able to meet these criteria, you want to get an arterial blood gas prior to apnea testing to achieve a PaO2 over 200 and a PaCO2, somewhere around 40 is the goal, but plus or minus five is acceptable. And an arterial line can be very helpful, especially in the patients who do have hypotension on vasopressors to not only monitor the blood pressure throughout testing, as a drop in the systolic blood pressure less than 90 requires you to abort testing, but also in order to get your arterial blood gas in a timely manner. And, and just taking a step back on the principle, because this some of our listeners are new learners, the idea is that somebody with intact brainstem function will have a strong breathing response, a strong impulse to breathe in the setting of hypercapnia, in the setting of elevated PCO2. So the idea is that if we stop ventilation, if we stop moving air in and out of the lungs mechanically through the ventilator, then that patient is going to start retaining CO2 pretty quickly, right? Over a period of several minutes. And generally speaking, uh, somebody in this situation, once they've started to retain CO2 above a certain threshold, will have a very strong impulse to breathe, provided they have intact brainstem functioning. Have Have I got that more or less correct? This is correct. And it's very important that you derobe the patient during testing and are watching very closely for chest rise because in a patient who's weak, the chest rise might not look very robust. And so while watching the vital signs to look for hypotension, you're also watching the chest for any movement, which would, if you do see movement of the chest, or any spontaneous breathing, you immediately need to reconnect to the ventilator and abort testing. So walk us through the steps of apnea testing. So during apnea testing, it's important to recognize that time zero is the time that the ventilator is disconnected. At that time, you need to provide supplemental oxygen as this is not a test for hypoxic drive to breathe, it is a test for hypercarbic drive to breathe. You need to uh, continually provide 100% FiO2 ensuring that you do not use flow rates over four to six liters as high flow rates might wash out the CO2. During the test, as I mentioned before, you need to watch for chest rise. If you see spontaneous breathing, the test should be aborted and the ventilator should be reconnected. You're also monitoring for hypotension. If the blood pressure drops below 90 systolic, the test needs to be aborted. And if the O2 sat drops below 85, the test needs to be aborted. It is okay to titrate vasopressors to prevent a drop in the, in the blood pressure. You should test for at least eight minutes. Typically, we test for 10 minutes, as long as the patient remains hemodynamically stable. An ABG should be obtained at eight minutes and again at 10 minutes, at which time you should reconnect to the ventilator. What do we ter- determine as a positive test? So how, how do we interpret a positive test? That is, no breathing response to hypercapnia? So a positive test is defined as a PCO2 
above 60 or a rise in the PCO2 by over 20 millimeters of mercury in someone who is chronic, a chronic CO2 retainer. What if we see an upward trend in the PCO2? Let's say it's 58 uh, millimeters of mercury. We have not seen any breathing response. And we really have a high clinical suspicion that this person is, uh, is, is brain dead, uh, has death by neurological criteria. Can we wait a little longer? Yes. Yeah, so as long as you uh, see that the patient is hemodynamically stable and meets all criteria for apnea testing, the test can be prolonged and you can go up to longer periods. So you can get tested 8, 10, 15 minutes. You should also assess what your flow rate is because if the CO2 is not rising, it may be because you're washing out some of the CO2 with, with high flow rates from the oxygen. What's the role of ancillary testing, right? There's a few different ancillary tests that we can use, but they're not necessary, right? If we've done the first three steps and we have somebody with clear irreversible cause, uh, a cause for irreversible brain injury, if there are no obvious confounding factors, if they have the absence of any brainstem reflexes and they have no response to hypercapnia, then, then we can determine brain death, right? But there are some cases when we might not. So uh, might not meet all those criteria. So when are when do we use ancillary testing? So ancillary testing is really only needed in three circumstances. The first is if you're unable to complete components of the clinical examination. So that may be in someone who had a trauma and had a tympanic membrane rupture. And so you can't complete OCRs or uh, cold calorics. Someone who has a confounding variable that cannot be corrected, so maybe they have severe hyponatremia that you can't correct, they're hypothermic but not warming with a bear hugger, and they are unable to uh, maintain a blood pressure compatible with testing. The third population are patients who may have respiratory issues and are unable to tolerate an apnea test, um, either due to oxygenation issues or due to hypertension. In those three populations, ancillary testing is required. And the most common test that we use is a nuclear medicine test. There's a couple of other tests we can use though, right? What are those? Yeah, so at this institution, we do not use EEG, but EEG is used by several institutions and it has to be done at two hertz to see that there's no cerebral activity. It is important that only some institutions use EEG because the electrodes need to be uh, set in a very specific fashion to ensure uh, brain death. Being an eeg right, this is very technically difficult, right? The distinction between very low voltage cerebral activity and the complete absence of cerebral activity is, is a very fine one. Uh, and as you said, this means looking at the EEG at a sensitivity of two microvolts per millimeter, which is really very high sensitivity and ensuring that you have the uh, double distance between the electrodes. There, there are a set of criteria that technical criteria that need to be followed. And then if you have any sort of electrical interference, it becomes even harder. And many of our patients have a lot of electrical interference because they're in intensive care units, you know, so they, uh, they, they would uh, be connected to all sorts of machines. Yeah. Other tests that are used across the country include CT angiogram, cerebral angiogram to look of for lack of cerebral blood flow and transcranial Doppler. But it is important to note at this institution, nuclear medicine test is the test that's performed. Tell us about a couple of problems that can really complicate uh, people progressing to brain death and are really, really common. Yeah, so I would say the most common problem uh, in patients progressing to brain death is diabetes insipidus. So when there is a loss of HPA axis function, 
This often coincides with onset of diabetes insipidus. You will see high urine output, somewhere around 250 to 300 uh, milliliters uh, an hour. Once you've achieved that urine output for two consecutive hours, you should start thinking about the diagnosis of diabetes insipidus, which requires looking at urine-specific gravity and the serum sodium. If urine-specific gravity is less than 1010 and serum sodium is above 145 and rising, then this patient meets criteria for diabetes insipidus. These patients can get very hypovolemic and require aggressive fluid resuscitation, often with D5 water to prevent severe hypernatremia that will limit your ability to uh, perform brain death testing. But they often also need either DDAVP or more commonly a vasopressin drip titrated to urine output. You mentioned earlier in, in talking about ensuring that the blood pressure was above a certain level. A lot of our patients with brain death have refractory low blood pressure. So how do we deal with that? Yeah, so refractory hypotension is, is very common in patients progressing to brain death and is really multifactorial. It's due to hypovolemia in the setting of diabetes insipidus, cardiac dysfunction from loss of hormones that regulate cardiac function, and HPA axis dysfunction. Refractory hypotension can be very challenging to manage, and often patients require multiple vasopressors, which can vasoconstrict blood vessels in other organs and lead to organ dysfunction. In patients who are progressing to brain death, it is very important to be cognizant of the fact that they may be an organ donor. And in these patients, using something called the T4 protocol, which is uh, steroids, Synthroid, dextrose, and insulin can help to minimize vasopressor requirements and improve cardiac contractility. Now, this is a, a critically important point uh, and and really useful tips on on common problems that come up. I have certainly been involved in conversations with family about the process of determining brain death. This is a highly emotional time. The usual causes of irreversible coma are often dramatic and abrupt, and in many cases, unexpected. Uh, so things are very emotionally fraught from the beginning. We're talking about the loss of a loved one. And this is a complex process, right? We just spent a lot of time talking about a very technical procedure. So what are some ways that we can optimize such a difficult conversation with families about the process of determining brain death and then what the results mean. Yeah, this can often be very challenging. And unfortunately, a lot of these patients we see are young. It is really important that you recognize that, that this is a legal diagnosis of death. And so when I explain this to families, I explain that in the state of Connecticut, there are two ways that patients can die. The far most common and the one that people recognize the most is cardiac death when the heart stops. But one other definition of death is when there's no longer any activity in the brain and that this is called brain death. And so I make it very clear that there are two ways to die and that it is a legal definition of death. I think it's also clear, let the family know that you're not asking them to make a decision. Brain death is a clinical and legal diagnosis and you are not asking them to make any decisions. This often goes much better if you speak to the family about brain death, what it means, and tell them that neurologic testing will be done prior to testing. I often at this time also say that when I call you back, I will be providing you a time of death. 
This gives the family a few hours to process the information and grieve before they are called back with a time for death. Yeah, I think this is something that comes up a lot, right? And it's an ounce of prevention, right? The time to have the conversation about the fact that this is death, that there's no decision to be made. Is, is not when the decisions are, when the determination has already been made, right? That's a, that's a time of shock, right? This is somebody who has just lost a loved one. And as you mentioned, sometimes somebody young and otherwise healthy in a way that is often very sudden and unexpected. And so hopefully we have been involved in these patients' care. We've been involved with the family talking about prognosis and our concerns about irreversible brain injury well before we go to brain death. And as you said, I think it's really important up front to, to tell them what we're doing, that we are going to be doing an examination which will result in a legal determination of death. And, and I like the way you've put it, uh, Rachel, to say, you know, there, there, there are two ways that we can determine that somebody is dead, you know, that the heart could have stopped permanently or uh, the brain, there could be no brain activity. And, and this is the second way. There's an art to all of this. It's certainly gets better with experience and a lot of sensitivity, a lot of understanding of the family's context and very clear communication up front means that the second conversation, when we give that family the time of death, uh, we can uh, we can be there for comfort. You know, that, that right. we've, we've already talked about the facts and then we're available to them for comfort in the situation of them losing a loved one. Right. And I think, you know, these conversations are very important to have early for many reasons to allow them to process. But I've also come across families who say, can you do the testing tomorrow? Today is my younger son's birthday, and I don't want this to be the day that his sister died for the rest of his life. There are other things that they're thinking about and giving them that little wiggle room, that opportunity to say, yes, we will do the testing tomorrow. So to make sure that this day is not marred for the rest of your son's life, it makes a huge difference. And we won't know that up front if we call them to tell them the time of death instead of having an open and honest conversation prior. Well, Rachel, this has been highly educational for me. Uh, I know that this is an area that is very close to your heart uh, and, and something that you feel very strongly about us all doing well and doing right. Uh, and I think it should be obvious to anybody why we want to do this right and well. And I, I'm, I really appreciate you spending some time with us to go through just how to do this expertly, how to consider everything with the, the most important decision that we will make for somebody's life and for outlining it so clearly for us. Thank you so much for having me. 